To me, that's greatness. To me, that is greatness. Like that's, yeah, you're in the presence of greatness. You're in somebody who in their chosen field has reached an elite level and they continue on that path. But so when you observe them, you just see somebody who's really, really good at something and has been good. Yeah, but what you haven't seen is maybe it takes a while to notice. They've adapted, they've learned, they've overcome and they're continuing. That's very, very impressive and rare. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most in applying knowledge under pressure. Now our guest this episode is Dr. Fergus Connolly. Fergus is a performance coach of the world's great elite performers in the most demanding high-performance organizations across sport, the special forces, and business. He holds a PhD in computer-based manufacturing optimization from the University of Limerick in Ireland, and he's worked in essentially every major sport, the Premier League, Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, and international rugby. He also works with leaders in Fortune 500 companies and members of the Special Forces community, all around improving human performance and helping to design winning teams and winning cultures. Now, this is one of those podcasts that was honestly just an absolute joy to record, and we probably spoke for about twice as long as what actually made it into this final cut, since there is literally just so much depth in what Fergus does and how he approaches complex problem sets around human performance. We talk about elite performance and being an elite performer, building mental models of individuals and teams, and I just love this, going paradox hunting to find the hidden keys to greatness. We also talk about how elite teams build and maintain culture and just so much more in this conversation. Now, if you like what you're hearing on the Emergency Mind podcast, be sure to share with your team and drop us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. This really helps us get the word out about what we're doing at the Emergency Mind project. Want to learn even more? Head to emergencymind.com slash sign up to join the deeper conversation. All right. All that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. Fergus, thank you so much for joining the podcast, man. I have loved our interaction in the uh, internet world, and I'm super psyched to sit down and talk with you. I think there's so much our listeners are going to get out of uh, out of digging into this. So um, I'm honored you join. Thanks for coming. No, thank you for having me, Don. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Do you mind giving folks just a real quick overview of like who you are and what your what your deal is? And then there's just like going to be like an explosion of thoughts here in just a second. So, <laughs> well, yeah, the first giveaway is is that I'm, I'm Irish. I grew up in Ireland. During the 80s, during a very interesting time, I went, first of all, I just was fascinated by sports, sports people. But I never thought of a career in sport. I decided I would become a teacher and I would coach. Uh, went to university, did a master's, did a PhD. My original degree was in woodwork and construction. My master's was in manufacturing. My PhD ended up being in computer-based optimization. But all of the time, I was uh, just fascinated by what is an elite performer or you know what, what is greatness, and particularly around sport. When I finished that, I, I would travel around the world. I used to write down the names of who are the best athletes and who are their coaches, and I would save money and, yeah, hop on a plane, go to New Zealand, go to the States, go to Canada, anywhere. It was back, email was just starting, so I sent one or two letters. I remember getting calls, actually. My parents would answer the phone, and they would go, hey, Fergus, there's, there's somebody, I think he's from England or something. Did you, did you send some person a letter? And I did. I would, I would write letters to people who had written books, asking questions about, like, you know, all kinds of stuff. And anyway, that, that was, I was just fascinated by, you know, 
What makes somebody perform at a, a really high level? On one of these trips, a Premier League team, they had just changed staff. One of them called me afterwards and said, look, we've changed staff. You were here. You seem to know a lot about... Actually, one of the things they'd started looking at was heart uh, rate variability, which mm. was, this is 20-odd years ago. And actually, uh, we started to import gas for cryotherapy from Poland. Like, this mm. is... N- nobody else was looking at. So, we have an opening. Are you interested? And so... That's when I started in the Premier League with Bolton Wanderers. Then worked in international rugby, consulted for NFL teams. Then eventually, yeah, got offers from NFL teams to come and work. Consulted for some special forces units, NBA, NHL teams. And yes, somebody asked me, you know, what was your plan? And uh, (laughs) when I I, I figure that out, I'll let you know. it's kind of like we were talking. It's kind of like we were talking at, at the at the beginning. Uh, you've a you've a passion for trying to understand what is a high performer, and the more you learn, the more you realize actually there's something else, or I don't know it all, and I there's more I need to keep learning. So yeah, I've been fortunate, very fortunate. I never worked with you know academies or development. My first role was straight in working with multi million dollar soccer players from all around the world actually as well which was interesting different cultures and so yeah it was a baptism of fire absolutely absolutely amazing and the the detail that you started with woodworking is incredible like mm-hmm. love that i don't know I'm gonna, I'm gonna draw a line here and i'm curious if this is a line that exists only in my mind or so please like fact check me if i'm completely making this up but but i wonder like when you think about the the discipline of being a craftsman of really working on your craft and working on yourself. There is to me such a parallel between what it is to like shape and plane and carve and work on yourself and work on a piece of wood. Like like there's a parallel in there somewhere that's going to I think this is like the biggest pun I'm ever going to make dovetail us into like elite performance in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think there are three things. There is the craftsmanship and the recognition that you're not in control completely like mm-hmm. that yeah you know and there's the physical aspect there the teaching aspect was really important as well because now you're you've got people who you know you have to light a fire in you can't just uh, dictate to them and the third one which was and we all know this as we get older it's harder to learn new things the third one that was very challenging though was the programming and then the record so from the PhD perspective, understanding programming and engineering where it's very logical and analytical. And so then when you work in high-performing teams, today particularly, you have a combination of all of those things. You've got a, there's a people aspect which you can't ignore. You've got structure, strategy, scheduling, and you've got technology, and then you've got the art and skill. And so being able, I think people are more aware now that you just can't rely purely on technology to solve a problem, particularly around humans. And so it's a combination of all of those things and how do you make them work best, particularly in you know, time-constrained uh, contexts. So, yeah, it's, uh, the, the learning curve is... And then, of course, the other thing which at the beginning was very stressful, but looking back on it was brilliant. We're having to do this in different cultures, different states... Um, even if you speak the same language, it's still very, very different. I remind yeah. p- people, um, people in the States, you know, if you go to New Orleans, they speak a little bit different, eat different food than perhaps Texas. 
there's 50 different countries on one big island. So even even speaking the same language, even within the same country, culturally there are massive differences that you have to appreciate when you're engaging with people. So all of those things have uh, fascinated me. Mm. I'm going to point out for my own ego protection that Fergus at least smiled a little bit at my dovetail joke, which you can't see if you listen to this on audio. I just want, I just want to like put that in the universe record. But anyway, let's ignore that for a second. So, so Fergus, so we're gonna we're gonna go to culture, and I think we're gonna spend probably a lot of our time there because I think that's one of the things that we understand the least when it comes to developing high performance teams and individuals. But before we go to culture, I want to take a step back towards the individual for a second and try to try to triangulate into this space of what is an elite performer. Like when you say elite performer, what is it to be elite? Yeah. So to me, an elite performer is somebody who can execute refined set of skills. And by refined, I mean accurate and precise in a very specific constrained context. Now, if you if you break that down, it's somebody... Here's part of the irony. The more elite they become, the more specialized they become and actually then sometimes people wonder why can't they do why aren't they elite in everything and the context is is critical as well people i think sometimes forget the importance of of the the context what also happens is the the refinement of skills means that they can they can execute those skills towards a target to execute a, a specific outcome and again the better you become at it the more specialized, but if we take them out of that context, they're not elite. You know, so if I put you in the kitchen, for example, you may or may not be elite. Yeah, I'm not uh, totally. So there's also the counterpoint of like that, like there are things that make individuals elite that transcend domain, right? That transcend exact context, and some of them are context specific, and some of them are not at all context specific, right? So you get on on one hand the ultra specialized surgeon that does a particular procedure over and over again, and by controlling as much of their environment as possible, they're able to really optimize outcomes in a way that is that is truly elite and to push that push that one surgery forward. And then on the other hand, you have the people like, say, Josh Waitskin, for instance, who is you know a well renowned expert at Tai Chi and chess and jujitsu and all of these things and seems to have developed a pattern of learning as what he is uh, elite in. And so how do you deal with that sort of tension? The more specialized you become, mm. then the challenges, the transfer of skills and the transfer mm. of qualities across, and then how adaptable one is. The greatest challenge in that instance very often is a psychological one because at the beginning, there's a great challenge in recognizing that there's going to be a learning curve. So sometimes what you'll see is when somebody transitions from out of one area into another, they really struggle with that, you know, the, the failure and the acceptance of failure because they have become accustomed to incredible success in one particular area. So to me, somebody who can transfer skills is, is very adaptable as somebody who's very, very comfortable recognizing that so-called failure is part of that learning process. And that's, that's very, very important for long-term, for sustaining elite performance. That's very, very important. And I think sometimes we, we take that for granted. 
So it's useful to maybe pause and define here something that we uh, haven't talked about a while on the podcast, which is skill transfer and transference. So you have sort of near transfer, which is I know skill X and I can do skill X plus one or X minus one, things that are really close to it, right? I can uh, do a particular setup in one sport. I can sort of play a sport that's like sort of kind of next to it, or I can maybe change positions temporarily to fill in a gap, right? And then you have far transfer, which is like a elite surgeon reading the inner game of tennis, right? And taking concepts from tennis and transferring them over to eye surgery, which is a very different thing on the surface. And it's a far transfer of skill. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that, or, or am I reading it right, that far transference and adaptability is a wonderful thing to have, but not necessarily innate to, to elite performance. Like it's maybe a different thing. It's certainly rare. It's, it's certainly rare. And I think there's, in my experience, the, the biggest challenge there is ego. Mm. Um, that's where I, I see most people struggle because, again, they have become accustomed and used to. They've gained recognition at being, so now to start and to struggle in a new area and to go on that path again to reach that, many of them really struggle at that point. And the near transfer, it's like the, the famous... Well, Sports Illustrated cover and book why Michael couldn't hit. You know, Michael Jordan goes to baseball and he struggles. So again, you're talking about you know a far transfer of skills. Even though he's still an elite athlete, there is coordination, motor skills that again has to start, and there's a journey there. Mm. All right, so we're, we're backing ourselves into, in a good way, into a, a, a more robust definition of what it is to be elite at a thing. And we're talking about how it's contextual. You can be elite at X without necessarily being elite at Y. Adaptability and transference is sometimes part of that, but not always. But what that leaves us with, I think, is that is eliteness is, well, I'm going to ask, is eliteness character traits? Is eliteness skills that we develop? Is eliteness come from inside or outside or both? Well, it, it depends on, you can't be great at everything and be elite. So is somebody truly elite if they're great at everything? Like, I mean, it's questionable. That would be a, a really impressive person. So that the context, I think, becomes very, very important. But I think that if you're looking at somebody who can sustain success, there are a set of character traits, uh, beliefs and values, I think, that are important to them. Because that's what is fundamental to how they drive forward. You know, so for example, humility, you know, so again, during this next learning curve where they're starting to adapt and transfer, they're humble enough to accept, okay, I'm going to struggle here, I'm going to make mistakes, and that's going to keep. So there will be a certain number of character traits, I think, that are important. I'm thinking back just to different athletes who had long careers that I worked with. Humility in particular was important because throughout their career, they have to change how they approach the game, the things they do, which means learning something new. Learning something new is going to be embarrassing. It's going to be humiliating. Now, within it, nobody's going to see it, but they're going to do it, and they're happy to do it, and they're happy to be embarrassed. They're happy to suffer, and then slowly they get good, and that continues. That allows them to sustain their career. Because the old skill set, use Michael Jordan, you know, early on, incredibly athletic. Later on, as that starts to win, has to learn a new set of skills. So has to learn a fadeaway jumper. Pretty sure when he started doing that, it was bad. But he was doing it in private, humbling himself, learning, blah, blah, blah. And then you see it on the court. 
So that ability to continue to ad- learn and adapt, that's what I think is critical to sustaining success. Otherwise, you have a set of skills, very well refined, execute in a particular context. What happens if something changes? Yeah, so we're starting to get here into a, a difference between somebody that can be elite at a moment in time and space at a particular thing versus somebody or an individual or a team or a group that is elite over long periods of time, right? That sustains and continues to excel and continues to grow. Yeah, and those those people are are fascinating. To me, that's greatness. To me, that is greatness. Like that's, yeah, you're in the presence of greatness. You're in somebody who in their chosen field has reached an elite level and they continue on that path but so when you observe them you just see somebody who's really really good at something and has been good yeah but what you haven't seen is maybe it takes a while to notice they've adapted they've learned they've overcome and they're continuing that's very very impressive rare quite rare somebody who can you know stay in the game yeah that's that's rare and when you look at yourself now versus when you first started, as you're telling us those stories of sending letters to folks, what do you see about greatness and human performance now that that was invisible to you then when you started? Man, so, so much. Like, I mean, when I started, when I started out, it was okay. What you know? Why are they great? And. It's almost like you start out and you, you latch on to one thing. So, for example, in sport, it's fitness. You know, oh, well, they're just the fittest. But then as you start to work with people, you start to read, hang on a second, there's stuff here that doesn't make sense. The guy who runs the least or the guy who's unfittest, why is he the best player? Another, like there's so many different paradoxes. You walk into a professional team, the guy who has the worst diet is maybe your best player. Oh, oh, that doesn't make sense. The guy who's the hardest working actually is, is cut from the team. There's so many paradoxes when you're in the environment. So what you start to realize is that this is a multifaceted and a multiphasic problem that you're trying to solve. And so what you start then to realize is, okay, the very first thing I need to do is I need to model the person. I need to start to put a model around what makes up a person executing or performing in this environment as best I can. Now you, you you start to realize there's too many things here. You know, I can't measure everything. So now I have to kind of categorize them. And then what you start to recognize is, okay, I only know about one or two areas. There's a whole other area. And that's a black box to me. I need to learn. I need to understand. I need to understand how it contributes. And so the, the better then that you can understand the holistic performer, at, at least if you don't have the solutions at least you have an awareness that there are other factors here and so you know making a short answer long that's kind of been i guess my journey in in the realization okay there's a lot more here to an elite performer for example in sport than just uh, fitness there's a lot more to sustaining success than mental toughness you know all of and and also, and recognizing as well that as people go through their careers, the dominance changes, the things they rely on change. Can we press on that a little bit? So how do you build a mental model of how somebody is performing? What, is it, what does that look like? Like, you, let's say you get contacted by, you know, tomorrow, 
Team X and uh, Team X can be sports or medicine or or some of the you know elite business groups that you work with or the soft community or anybody, and they they drop you in day one. How do you start building that mental model? So, in a, or this is a generalization, but today people generally are very very good at the one thing they do. If they're an engineer, an architect, whatever, generally they're very good at that because you, you've gone to school, you've gone to university, you've studied, and again, you've specialized in that area. So that's the first starting point. Like, can somebody do their job? And then is there additional training or experience that they need to get? And then beyond that, then it's how do they work with others? And then what are the other skills? So like your ability to communicate in your team, in your group, that's going to impact. You can be the, you know, you can be the best surgeon, best trauma surgeon, whatever, but and at one moment in time it might be fine but you've got to work everybody has to work with somebody so can you communicate can you build a team can you lead and then also then you've got the external elements which are in their personal life their own personal health and wellness how does that affect performance so now you start to build out a model now as people tend to get older the the other underlying one then is one's purpose and morals ethics values which and again, like, I know you're smiling, but all of these things matter. And, and in, you know, in critical moments, they matter most. So you start to build a model and what you're looking for is initially is you're looking for, okay, what's the limiting factor? You know, what is the, what is the one thing that we can flip that can accelerate um, so many of these other things, because often it can be one thing holding somebody back. Hmm. So you're almost building out sort of your idea of how the person's functioning, and then you're you're looking for rate limiting steps and and pinch points, and also areas where there's paradox where something doesn't make sense, where it would yes. seem like somebody would do X, but actually they're vastly overperforming or underperforming based on what you'd expect out of that out of that person. Yeah, sorry to use the term in this. In this great book, it is yeah, rate limiting though. But yeah, I, so what you're looking for is I call them, you know, I refer to them as limiting factors. Like so, you can have somebody who is technically brilliant and do their job exceptionally well, but they're not doing it well. So okay, so what is the what is the issue? So what's holding them back? And then every but what you find is that there's a functional minimum that people must have in all of these areas to do their job. And if they don't reach that, well, they're probably not going to be working at the level that you're going to be engaged with them at, but there's a basic functional minimum that, that they must have. One other thing that you find with, back to the term elite performers, elite performers are elite compensators. Like they can compensate exceptionally well. So, you know, back to a brilliant trauma surgeon under pressure, like very very calm can handle stress brilliant terrible communicator but but they compensate you know they compensate for for personality whatever by being brilliant at their job or by and but that will only work so long and then eventually so again having that holistic model becomes important for sustaining success and then on to greatness that to me is what what becomes critical so cool. Well, this, again, this is how I see it. This is how I view it. And like we were talking earlier, 
I just have lots more questions than I do answers. But but this is trying to put trying to put the pieces together. That's how I've tried to approach understanding what an elite performer is. How do you find the areas for, for potential? How do you improve them? And then how do you get them to a state where they can sustain that level of performance? And throw out random statistic. When you get to a certain point, 99% of it is not about your job. You know your job. Like, you, you know, when you get to that level, quarterback control the ball. Man, there's so many, so many directions to go with this. And I, I think I'm going to zoom us out just a little bit. So we've been talking this whole time about elite performers as individuals, and we've sort of, you know, we've talked about their inner factors and their home life and their learning and the intrinsic capability they have to adapt and change. But but I want to zoom us out a little bit. And so in the Emergency Mind Project, we look at sort of three levels or three tranches of sort of how things fit together. We look at the individual, the team, and the culture. Uh, and that's it's a bit of an artificial distinction because, you know, sort of where are those lines, but, but whatever, that's kind of how we frame it. So we've been focusing on the individual. Can we zoom out a little bit and think about think about the team? So in all of these teams that you've worked with, you must have seen so many models for what makes in a team elite as opposed to an individual elite. I'm just going to, I'm going to anchor us in that. And like, what has that been like as you discover how different teams approach what it is to be elite? Yeah. And, and again, as you would know, like you learn as much from the bad ones as you do the good ones. Because Absolutely. Things highlighted. When you talk about culture and teams, um, one of the things that, that I looked at was looked at the the person as a culture, like mm. the person of a culture. So like it, when you look at people, people have and, and this is this particularly today, I think is critical. People should have should be allowed to have one should enjoy others' different belief systems. Absolutely. And then you try to find commonality on values. So we can all, I've used like, yeah, you know, you've got five blind men around an elephant. They all, but again, you've got, you can align on values and what your definition of uh, honesty or integrity is. So you can, we can all look at it differently, but we can all agree on what it is. And so now you start to pull people together on what the values are and then, and particularly how are they expressed? Because they inform then your attitudes to different things, but fundamentally you're really interested in behaviors, how people behave and I call them artifacts and behaviors, but, you know, the, the actual physical, you know, your presentation, whatever, and behaviors, because that's what people engage in. And it's, I call it the three-year rule. It, the professor in Portugal, he blew my mind when he explained it to me, but you can go to any organization and run it hard for three years. But fundamentally, by the third or fourth year, this is where people now start to truly understand one another and understand if they're sincere, authentic, and genuine. And honesty or authenticity in a, in a person, I think, is, is the most important thing because you can work with anyone when you know what they are and where they're coming from, even if you don't like them, even if you don't agree with them, but you can work with them. But if you don't have that honesty, then you can't build trust. That becomes the foundation because if you if you don't have trust, you spend people spend so much energy, time, emotion, worrying and concerned, and so that becomes that becomes really important when people know where they stand. Because fundamental, one of the fundamental things to any human, any cell, any organism is survival and security. 
if I feel secure, trust, even if I don't like it, or even if I don't, I can work with that person. Now, if I like them, and well, brilliant, now you've, now you've got something special. So is this psychological safety that you're talking about in the way that it's normally used, or, or are you, is this something else? I guess so. I guess, yeah, the term, yeah, the, the terms like psychological safety, I, I guess it is. I think that, or I, was, I became aware of that perhaps later. Sure, sure. For, for me, probably the, so the first, if you look at um, Patrick, Patrick Lansacone's first thing, you know, is, is trust, is the foundation. To me, it's actually honesty. Mm. You know, if, like, if you want to build a, a great team, if you've got that brutal honesty, compassionately ruthless, I call it, if you've got that, then you can move forward. You know, then you've got trust. But it's, it's different, like it takes time to build, to build trust. Compassionately ruthless. I, I love that. So that's actually probably what you and I first interacted on, which is which is maybe like a great shift into that is this idea of signals and spotters, right? So, oh, so yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So we got into it over this conversation about like when you're trying to perform better under pressure as an individual who is part of a team, how do you turn on your internal radar and your internal set of sensors to figure out how you're doing? And how do you leverage the multi-dimensional uh, relationships between your team members about that? And that got us to this idea of signals and spotters. Can, can we dive into that for a second? Can you can give folks an overview of signals and spotters? Yeah. So this is where most of the most of the challenges for me come from. They, they come from a problem. And okay, how do you solve this problem? So when people react, what we would term irrationally or emotionally, not on a big scale, but on a minor scale, okay, so what's the source of that? And very often you think it's something to do with a relationship, but very often you realize it's something going on in their personal life or some other stress. And so I would look at myself and go, why, why was I irritable, short, sharp? Why was I, why did I feel like that? What I started to notice was uh, I would look for I went back to my old research in, in sport of what are the the signals of overreaching and overtraining. So there's so many, like, I mean, resting heart rate's up by five. But there are lots of other ones as well. For example, like hair being brittle, nails being brittle, small things. There's, there's so many of them. But then there are just observable, subjective ones. If your room is untidy... Uh, there was other guys I would talk to, they would talk about if their car was untidy, messy. Somebody else would talk about how, you know, my, my dog, when I come home, he senses when I'm a little bit stressed and anxious, so he's just more cautious, he doesn't come running, to, just small things like that. For me, it was untidiness. And um, I remember one particular job was working so working so hard, crazy, room was untidy, or apartment wasn't tidy so what I do I went and I got a, hired a cleaner and I took away that signal that I would notice so I would put in place like what are the signals that we can pick up uh, ourselves that we need to take a step back just manage our own functional load that we have and how can we just what are those signals because we all want to do more you know work harder so that was the first thing. And then the second thing was in relationships externally, are there friends and family and people who can notice things about us? You know, if somebody said to you, oh, Dan, you look, you look tired and you're thinking, I thought I looked like a million dollars, but they see something in you, you know? So what are those? And can we become more aware of them before we have an interaction where it's displayed? And so those are the, that's where this idea came from. And, yeah, so 
yeah, it's, a, it's something for people to think about. Is there something that you notice, just something small, that's a signal to you that there's a, a functional load that you're overreaching, you're starting to overreach before you start to break or crack? It really comes back to honesty, what you're describing, right? Because if if you and I are working together and I'm like, Fergus, I'm trying to perform better as an emergency doctor under pressure. Here's what I think some of my signals are. I need you to be compassionately ruthless with me. I need you to spot me and say, hey, Dan, you're like drifting a bit, right? That works because we can establish that honest relationship with each other. That's like the under, that's like, I don't know, the cement in this, in this metaphor or whatever it is that really makes that work. Yeah. Hey, Dan, you're, you might be a little bit sharp with whoever. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and before it's even said, you, yeah, you're right. And I and the best teams I've worked with, like coaches, you're walking out of the room after having an argument about a selection or a training process, or whatever, and somebody just pats, taps you on the shoulder and goes, "Hey, you know that you know I, re- I respect your pain, but I just disagree with you." And you just smile and laugh. Yeah, absolutely. And you want that because you want people. You want like so. People talk about if you look at how a team interacts. If you've got no tension among people, you're not going to have any creativity. You're not going to have any problem solving. You're not going to have yeah. any innovation. So you need it. But the foundation is being authentic and being. And the first place is to be honest with oneself, which is difficult. That takes a lot of work because we all lie to ourselves all the time. You know when we. But if you've got, and so now what you have is you have this small circle where, yes, psychologically safe, but you've got the small group or relationship where you can be psychologically safe and you can be open. That's what vulnerability is. Mm. And so you're, you're building in this group where you have a small a small group of folks who are dedicated to improving themselves and to becoming elite and to and to achieving greatness or to being great people, great humans. And then you create this group where you're like, hey, we're going to work together to do this, right? We're going to, I want you to be compassionately ruthless with me. I want you to push me. I want you to make that happen. And those agreements that you're forming are the, are the links in this cloud model or in this small group or whatever that really pushes the whole group forward. I love that. Yeah. And you can, again, you can have that externally as well. Mm-hmm. Like, you mean, you know, I've got people who are close to me who I don't have to ask them. They, they will tell me like one of like, you mean, my own coach, uh, Ben Ives in San Diego, like, you mean, we will go in and talk and, you know, I don't have to ask him. He'll tell me and I expect him to. And if he didn't, you know, th- then that's not being authentic. He was brilliant this long time ago. He's I was talking about something and I was talking, I was saying, you know what, I don't want to burden, you know, whatever. And he was going, well, so you're not being honest. Okay, now that's that's hurtful. If you're not being honest and authentic and not sharing or the other person isn't, then then you're not going to have trust. And so it, and it's going to be a very, very small group of people that you can be honest with, that, that you can have that vulnerability with. I was working uh, recently with a EMS company, an ambulance company, and or a paramedic company is a better way to say it. And one of the challenges they were facing is that they're often paired as a, a two-person team into an ambulance for a shift, not knowing the other person ahead of time. And they're sort of like creating this flash culture between the two of them. There's this dyad, right? And and they're trying to figure out how to how to move forward with it. And one of the solutions that this group came up with is that they wanted everybody, every 
team member to do some internal work to figure out what some of their signals of stress might be. And then they wanted a baseball card they could hand to each other at the beginning of the shift and be like, hey, I'm Dan. Here's my training. Here's what my big stress signal is. Can you look out for this for me? Here's the thing I'm working on on myself. We're still in the process of working with them about that, but but what a cool example of sort of what yeah. you're saying, right? Because it creates that instant vulnerability, that acknowledgement that my signal is maybe not the same as your signal, and that sort of buy-in to say, hey, I really, I know you don't know me, but like, ooh, if I'm doing this, I need you to, I need you to help me with it. Yeah, what I love about those examples, any of those examples are somebody's trying to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just love that. I what I what bugs me or you know you know, you go somewhere and nobody's trying. Like try and fail. Like it's the people come up like um and some of them are stupid. Like we used to on jerseys of with one team we used to put you know the the learning style, mm-hmm. visual kinesthetic. So we would stitch a small piece of thread, you know, violet, red, depending on what their learning style was, so that if you were going to explain or coach this person, it should be kinesthetic or it should be visual. V, violet, you know, get out a pen, sketch it, it's a quick way for them to pick it up. Small things like that. And listen, if, if it's a problem, get over solve it. I don't I don't care. Like you mean it's a problem, solve it or try to solve it, you know? But I think that I think yeah. A baseball card, and actually on that. So one of the things that one of the things I used, which ironically has been used, I know high schools have done it and tier one groups have used it. It's what I call a performance passport. On one page, can you assess somebody on one page? It put everything completely objectively and subjectively, and this is back to this idea of profiling, so that you could help with the person. You know identify where those limiting factors are and and let's just let's if it's a problem identify it and solve it and truthfully you know if you look at what everybody else has done you're already going to be at least three years behind them because by the time you know you get to that what problem have you you solve it in your environment and be innovative and creative and and you know back yourself do it you know but if if you always look to what other people are doing you're just behind them you're always going to be second place um yeah so but the the baseball card is that's pretty cool and if you do it in the right way as well you um yeah which the first thing is of course the other person's going to be thinking geez i don't even know what to say that you know yeah it's a start, right? And and I think what you're describing, like like you know, it sort of gets into like the Ray Ray Dalio idea of like they sort of do a similar thing of here's everything I know about myself and all these psychometric testing and all of my knowledge about myself as a person, so that we can start this conversation on not zero, but on like plus one at least, right? On like some things forward where we're sort of accelerating ourselves. What you said is so true that if you're just doing the best of what other people have, you're already behind. And at the same time, at least you're moving forward, right? At least you're like trying to solve things and, and get things going. And you've made a commitment by doing that, that you you believe you can get better, your team can get better, and you're invested in that. I think, I think that's super important. True. That was my old, very competitive <laughs> sport, sports side coming out where you're looking at your competition going, what are they totally. doing? And going, going, no, I want to do better. What's What, yeah. well, what can I do that's ahead? Because I, I want them to be looking at whatever I've done two years ago. And that's where, yeah, you want to, you want to try and solve the problem. The biggest people talk about, you know, 
problem solving, problem solving techniques. No, no, no. My thing is problem identification. Can you find out what the real problem is? That's where the biggest issues are, you know, and the greatest room for improvement is, or one of anyway, is find out what the real problem is. Yeah. Um, How do you do that? <laughs> Again, if you, if you don't have honesty, you're not going to find it with the person. Like it's it's like you know, like the the medical expert who comes to work, and you know they can do their job, but they're not doing it. So why? What's up? Oh, I you know whatever. I was tired. It was whatever. Like, and you have to go why 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 to get to it. Now, if they're honest, you, you know the person, you know over coffee will tell you, man, you know I've got this going on, or I've got this my daughter's really really sick and I just man I didn't know you should tell me we can uh, let's solve it take care of that but he can do his job or she can do her job that's not what the the problem is and so but again if you don't have authenticity and honesty being one trying being authentic oneself you can't build an honest relationship and if you don't have that well you know you're not going to have any psychological safety any trust but so now you're now you're just hiding things you know from the group or from the the person who can help you fergus in sort of the last of the major topics i want to touch on for a minute you said something that i heard recently that i loved that i'm hoping we can dive into we've done individual we've done team and i want to push us into the broader aspect of the culture of an organization for a moment and you said culture coaches when you're not around mm. And yeah. man, I I loved that. What, uh, talk to me about that. What's what's going on there? So the the great teams that I've been been part of, you know, you find that you find that they're not like there's not one person leading it. So it's not like the head coach or whatever. So you might be in the locker room, and you notice a, a standard, like is an expectation, like nobody. Nobody leaves the locker room untidy, but there's nobody there pointing it out. And I was going, why? Like nobody's going, and or it might be left untidy a small bit, but then nobody comes in and points it out. But the next day, it's not. Like you mean, the standard has come back to the standard. So why is that? And there's an expectation set, and I won't name the team. There was a there was an incident in a rugby game uh, with this particular team where a player. A player spotted another player. A player just joined the team. On this team that I was with, he'd spotted a player. Fight broke out. Another player hit him. All of his teammates came, took care of him, settled it down. So they defended him. But when they went back into the locker room, um, everybody's back in the locker room. Everybody's back in the locker room. They've won the game. Everybody's happy, calm. And I didn't, wasn't even noticing it, but the captain of the team walked straight across and he just smacked this new player who had just joined the team recently right in the face and we don't do that here and but outside externally they'll defend blah 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 but internally no that's the standard that we keep internally and set it now that's an extreme example but the point being that internally we have a standard we don't there's certain things we don't do that didn't come from a head coach didn't come from anybody else but this is the standard and the and the really important thing for for groups is there's a reason for a standard. Like it's not just a random thing that you pick. Like we, I don't know, we always keep our top button buttoned or whatever. There's a reason for it, and that's explained and it's reinforced. Let's say on an annual basis, but it's reinforced. Let's go through. You know, 
like values and standards. This is what we do and, and why we do it. But it and it's really important that it's reinforced because what you start to see is with elite groups then that start to falter. What happens is people who join inherit a standard, but they don't know why. When they don't know why, they don't have. There's two things: they don't know the importance, but they don't have ownership of it. So it's not as important to them. Mm. So if you go over a number of years and it hasn't been reinforced, explained, or owned. It's just inherited. It's not quite the same as having ownership. And how do you counter that? Do you see among the great teams an explicit part of onboarding or is it a yearly check-in or is it, you know, tied to sort of like a commemorative day? Like on this day every year, we think about, you know, like this person and this is the lesson that we learned and this is why we do this. Yeah, there's a, I think the, not trying to sound cultish, but there's a, a ceremony importance, and mm-hmm. there's a there's a legacy, and there's a, a number of factors that become critical because when you come to a group, it's impressed upon you the importance of and why. And one other really important thing as well that I think s- some teams forget about is the alumni of that group, how those are treated, respected, and that relationship sets out the vision for how the rookie or the person coming in sees their future. So if they look and see, well, once I'm done or I'm dismissed or I'm not looked after or cared for, why should I invest as much? I'll turn up and do my job. But my ownership of this entity and also it's of something that's bigger than me because when you have ownership of it, like if you have to, and that's truly elite, like shared, you know, being part of, instructed, inheriting, that's fine. Shared is what is, but ownership, n- now I have ownership of this. Now I have a responsibility to and from. Like people have asked me my opinion and it's revised. If there's a standard that needs to be changed or a value or, and it's revised based on, like they've asked me my opinion, so now I am part of this. And that that's very, very important. So much to think about there. That's amazing. For example, I, w- I want to be mindful of our time. I could, I could keep going with you for this for extended periods. (laughs) Yeah. And these are just like all of the the questions you ask are like, those are the questions that, you know, you ask like when with different teams have gone to and you're trying to pull out the best examples. One of the things that it's very, you know, this, when you go and you work with somebody and you see it and you observe it and you're there, you get a different perspective than if you just were external viewing it. And that's where the learning comes from. Because there's so many paradoxes, you know. You know, you read a list of, oh, you must do this, this, and this. You go to a team that's, or a group that's at the highest level. They're not doing any of that, but they're still. But it's like, what does that, but so there's the external observation and there's actually, and then there's the why. And that's the, that's the beauty of it though. That's what's, when you are part of a team that is like truly dominating, it's beautiful. It's like, it's, it's really beautiful. You see people at their best. Fergus, thank you so much. But before we close out, I always want to give folks an opportunity to, to issue a challenge to anybody listening to this. So if you are anybody who is part of the Emergency Mind Project community, anything you want to leave them with, a question they can work on for themselves, something you want answered that you'd love for them to give you answers to, anything you're challenged on or what you want them to do differently tomorrow after listening to this podcast. 
Oh man, I've I've got so many questions. I would love to like I've got uh, there's there's so many things that that I believe to be true. But the only way you can truly test them is okay. They've worked in this and this, but would they work in in that environment? That's how they become more back to the one of the initial things more refined because you can only disprove them. Two challenges. I guess the first one is like like who's your spotter? Like who is the one person that you can close the door and will give you honest feedback? And if you can come up with if you come up with more than five, then then you are lying to yourself. But like, who are your spotters? Like, who's the person who will come tap you on the shoulder and go, "Hey, listen, you might not want to hear this, but I want to say it to you." And the other one then is, yeah, have you any signals? Are there signals that? And then that's going to take time. It's going to take awareness. But yeah, give yourself the space to spot or to look out for your own personal signals that, yeah, you're you're that functional reserve has reached a reached a peak i'd be mm. interested in yours dan <laughs> let's let's catch up in a few weeks Absolutely. i keep i keep refining them but tidiness for me is definitely is definitely one the amount of t- the length of time it takes me to fall asleep the course that's an obvious mm. one like does it take is it starting to take me a little bit longer that's such a perfect segue. I mean, we're actually just about in the next short period of time here to come out with some emergency mind project training on introspection and signals, right? Training that we've used right. and that we've been uh, working with our emergency physicians with about how to understand those signals, categorize them for yourself and recognize them so you can understand when you're really, you know, all the way right shifted on a York Stodson curve or you're somewhere where you're really, your, your performance isn't really being what you want it to be. And we talk about early signals and late signals and trying to figure out where you are in that and externally observable versus only internally observable signals. So thank you for that. But that plant, stay tuned. Yeah, <laughs> one thing one thing about that that, that I, I find with elite performers, the last thing that's going to fail is their performance in their mm-hmm. area of speciality because they Absolutely. compensate and adapt. So you're looking for, that's why I talk about like, you know, how tidy is your room or how tidy is your car. Absolutely. Those are the things you're going to let slip. And those are the first leading indicators. 100%. I, I completely believe that there's so much times where you, where I've shown up to work and performed at an elite level. And then before and after, you know, I, I mentally split it into sort of like stethoscope on time and stethoscope off time, right? Like stethoscope on, I'll show up and do everything I can. Stethoscope off, I'm like, my world is in disarray. And it took a long time of sort of understanding that those two things were linked, which sounds so obvious to say that, right? Because you like, yeah. like, of course they're linked. But I think the dominant model of of education and the dominant model of what it is to be an emergency physician, especially as I was coming up is like, no, no, no. Stethoscope on time is what matters. Like your world can crumble around you, but as long as you're showing up and doing, doing your job and holding the line, like you're succeeding in large quotes. And and I think that that's something that we're slowly bending the culture curve on in our organization and in the broader field of emergency medicine, um, which is that that's not true that I actually like you as a human being is like, is more than just your ability to hold that line for that moment. There's so much in there that has to do with that dichotomy of sort of elite performance at an exact moment versus greatness in general as a human being yeah no it's it's fascinating and and I, I think the one last point for you know for your audience in particular is that this is not a problem that somebody is going to come and give you a solution what people can do is they can ask questions of you that you're going to be able to solve and also provide examples but nobody's nobody's trying to tell you what you should do it's you know Here's some thoughts. 
to help you get better. I think that's the beauty of it. And, uh, and I think that's where the real value in the work that you're doing is. Fergus, thank you so much, man. Such an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dan. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.